Well, as many as of you know, I have a business that I run, a mattress business. And I drive around delivering mattresses all over Brevard County, from the far north, Titusville, to the far south of Sebastian, just delivering mattresses. And when I find myself on these mattress deliveries, I'll have the radio on in my truck. And so I've got my radio on, and let me tell you, there's one particular commercial that is driving me crazy. You know what I'm talking about? You're listening to the radio on and on and on, and this one commercial keeps on, and it's just driving me crazy. Not because of the product that they're selling, it's just because of the commercial itself for safe touch home security. They have a couple of thieves who sound like they are a cross between the mob type guys and Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern's characters from the Home Alone movies. Do you know what, you know, you know, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. This is the commercial. This is the commercial and it's driving me crazy. The commercial is supposed to be entertaining and at the same time drive home the importance of home security and the fact that you can't watch your home 24-7, which is true, you can't do it. Home security is now a big business. You can have a whole system installed now with cameras, motion sensors, and all of it. Why? To prevent home invasion, to prevent thieves from coming in when you are not there, or worse yet, in the middle of the night when you're fast asleep. Which brings us to our text tonight. Peter has been talking about scoffers and how they have scoffed and ridiculed the idea of Jesus' return. Now Peter has challenged the scoffers. He's challenged this thinking of the scoffers. And he has told us about how they willfully forget the creation of the world and the flood of Noah's time. The creation and the flood. They willfully forget these two important points of history. And just like those ancient events are true, the promise of Jesus' second coming to the earth is true and sure. And here in our text tonight, Peter tells us that Jesus' return will be like a thief in the night. A thief in the night. For some, the return of Christ will catch them by complete surprise. They will not be looking for it. And the exhortation of Scripture concerning the return of Christ is to be ready for it, to be expecting it, to be watching for it. Tonight, we'll look at a couple points as we close our close out 2 Peter and our 21st Century Christian series. First, be ready for Christ's return. Be ready for Christ's return. And second, be committed. Be committed. Let's take a look at verse 10. Be ready for Christ's return. This is 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. It says this. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, 
What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness and looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Be ready for Christ's return. This is the call. This is the admonition of Scripture. This is the exhortation to be ready for Christ's return. Peter tells us here that the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. I mentioned earlier the, the, the movie that they used to show us back in the 70s. You know, the Christian movie Thief in the Night, you know. And, and you know, they'd show it to us all, ki- all as kids and, you know, I'm pretty sure everybody there got saved, you know, because we didn't want to be left behind when Jesus comes like a thief in the night. Now, where did, where did this whole idea of a thief in the night come from? Did Peter just kind of pull that out of a hat? Did he just kind of was grasp, grasping at straws or whatever? No. In Matthew 24, the disciples asked Jesus about his coming. And they asked specifically, when will these things be? When will these things be? Now, throughout the chapter of Matthew 24, Jesus goes on to explain some things surrounding his coming. But towards the end of the chapter, he told them that he was coming at a time when people would least expect it. In other words, many would not be ready for his return. I'll have a couple of the verses up on the screen for you. Matthew 24, verses 42. Jesus said this, Watch therefore. For you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Verse 43. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. And so this is kind of where you have the idea, a teaching of the Lord specifically, that it's going to catch many off guard. It's going to catch many by surprise. Why? Because they're not looking for it. They're not looking for it. They're not ready for it. They're not watchful for it. And so the message for the disciples is clearly this. Don't be caught off guard. Don't be that one that's caught off guard by the return of Christ. Be ready. Be ready for the Lord's return. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul told the Thessalonians. The church in Thessalonica, he wrote two letters to them, the Apostle Paul. And, and uh, Peter even mentions Paul's teaching later in our text as we finish up the chapter here, chapter 3 of 2 Peter. He's going to mention to us some of the teaching, uh, not directly, but reference the fact that Paul has done teaching specifically on the topic. And one of those places that you can find the teaching on the topic of the Lord's return is in 1 Thessalonians. Really, uh, the whole letter kind of deals with it, but it's chapters 4 and 5 for sure. Those are the home run chapters uh, dealing with uh, the return of Christ. And you come to chapter 5 in 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 2. Have it up on the screen for you. It says this, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. So here Paul is articulating that concept of the Lord's return, the day of the Lord, the Lord's return coming as a thief in the night. So there you have it from the Lord 
himself, Matthew 24. Now Paul is teaching on this, and now here we are in 2 Peter. And Peter is telling us this too. And this is all to say that there will be those that will be caught off guard, that he will come to many people. Unfortunately, they will be caught, caught off guard. They will not be ready. They will not be watchful whatsoever. Then down in, in verse 4 of 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, Paul says this, But you, brethren, listen to how he contrasts the difference between those who will be caught off guard as though the Lord has come back as a thief in the night and the true believer. The contrast is this, But you, brothers, are not in darkness so that the day should overtake you as a thief. So the message is this, The Lord will come back. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. But for you, brothers and sisters, those of you who have come into the kingdom of God, those of you who have been brought out of darkness into his glorious light, the day should not overcome or overtake you as a thief. Why? Because we're not those that are going to be overtaken unaware. We are aware. Amen. We're here reading it tonight. And we need to be those people that are are expecting the Lord's return, that we're being ready, that we're watching, we're being watchful in our lives. Amen? And it's so important. And it's so important to come to these types of passages because it's so easy. It's so easy to to be forgetful. It's so easy to dismiss these kinds of topics. It's so easy to not really, you know, go there. Uh, But it's very, very important. In fact, the Lord's return is something um, that we should be uh, that we should think about often in our lives. Amen. Because the the uh, apostle John talks to us about in his epistle that if if you were expecting the Lord's return, that 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 you are kind of perfecting your ways, that you're that you're learning to follow Christ. Why? Because you have this mindset that the Lord is returning. And so it's, it's an important doctrine, uh, something that shouldn't be neglected. So much so that Jesus actually brings it up again in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, chapter 3, Jesus in his letter to the church of Sardis tells them and us, because we're sitting here reading it tonight, amen, Revelation chapter 3, verse 3, I'll have it up on the screen for you. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. This is the message that Jesus is speaking to the church at Sardis. Now, we don't have time to go into, I love, the, I love that study on the seven churches, man. I could, I, could, I could preach that like once a year. I could just do a seven weeks series on the seven letters of the seven churches. Because I love, I just love that whole Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3. It's just, it's just great, great stuff. Why? Because it's direct letters of Jesus to seven churches. And, and, and they're important things. And there's a personal application that you can look at in each one of those letters. And here's one of the applications that you can look at in this letter to the church of Sardis. Is this idea of, of being neglectful and not watchful in your life. And Jesus challenges them. And he, he, says, he says, therefore, if you will not watch, if you won't do it, then I will come upon you as a thief. And you will not know what hour I will come upon you. 
Interestingly, just, just, just so you know, the context of why Jesus would specifically say this to the church at Sardis, this city in Asia Minor that would be modern-day Turkey, just a little background on that. The city of Sardis was characterized by a combination, listen to this, of easy money and loose moral, a loose moral environment. <laughs> does, it sound, does that sound familiar? And this made the people of Sardis notoriously soft and pleasure-loving. One of the commentators, Barclay, put it this way, quote, the great characteristic of Sardis was that even on pagan lips, Sardis was a name of contempt. Its people were notoriously loose-living, notoriously pleasure and luxury-loving. Sardis was a city of decadence. This softness, this lack of discipline and dedication was the doom of Sardis on a few different occasions. Sardis was considered apparently impregnable from from a military standpoint. It was surrounded by 1,000-foot cliffs on three sides and with a river that ran along the other side along the cliffs that kind of served as a moat. And so with this geography, this topography, you had what seemed to be an impregnable city from a military standpoint. The Greek historian Herodotus tells the story of the fall, in, the fall of Sardis in the days of Cyrus, King Cyrus, that has come up recently in various things. Anyways, we won't get into that. But anyways, King Cyrus had come to Sardis and, 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 and had found the position of the city ideally suited for defense. You will remember from your Daniel study how Cyrus took Babylon. He took it without a fight, right? Read your Bibles, Daniel chapter 5. Belshazzar, the son of, of uh, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, was throwing this massive party with a thousand of the top people in the land. And, uh, you know, that's the, that's the famous party where the mysterious hand shows up and writes on the wall. Uh, remember that? Uh, many, many, tekel, tekel, you know. And so they were like, what's this? What's going on? And uh, his, his, uh, his, his grandmother says, you know, your father had a guy that would interpret things for him. His name was Daniel. <laughs> and so Daniel, Daniel came in and interpreted the writing on the wall. And that's where we get that euphemism. So next time somebody says that, yeah, yeah, that's from the Bible. I love telling people when they use euphemisms. Do you know where that's from? The Bible. And, uh, <laughs> you know, because they don't know. The writings on the wall is from the Bible. What was the writing? You've been, you have been counted and found wanting. And that night, the kingdom was taken from him. Cyrus had circled and encircled the city of Babylon and the moats of the city had run dry and literally came in with their men and their horses and took the city. So that's kind of what Cyrus was known for, just you know, taking cities like this. When he comes to Sardis, he looks at it and goes, whoa, how are we going to take this place? It seems to be impregnable from that standpoint. So he offered a rich reward to any soldier 
in his army who could figure out a way to get up to the city. One particular soldier studied the problem carefully. And as he looked, he saw a soldier defending Sardis drop his helmet down the cliff walls. And he watched as the soldier climbed down a hidden trail to recover his helmet. He marked the location of the trail and led a detachment of troops up it that night. And when they easily scaled the cliffs and came to the actual city's, city walls, they found them unguarded and they were overtaken like a thief in the night, the city of Sardis. It kind of makes that thing that Jesus is telling them a little bit more kind of ringing, you know, a little bit too close to home. Right? Now, one thing that history teaches us is that we don't learn from history. <laughs> the same thing happened almost 200 years later when Antiochus attacked and conquered the overconfident city that didn't set a watch. And so Sardis is synonymous with overconfidence. And thus, the warning of Christ to the city, to the church. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you like a thief in the night. The moral of these things is that we are not to be overconfident in anything. Except for one thing we can be overconfident in. The Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The Lord our God. Just have a bunch of confidence in the Lord. Amen. And his return. And his return. Ready. Ready for his return. We're to be watchful. We have to set a commitment and a daily attitude of watchfulness. Reminded of Pastor John Corson that he has taught his congregation there in Applegate Valley, Oregon, for years and years and years, keep your eyes on the skies. Amen? Keep your eyes on the skies. Why? Having a commitment, a daily attitude of watchfulness that the Lord is returning. Next, Peter tells us what will happen when Jesus returns. During this the day of the Lord. Look back verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come upon you as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in them will be burned up. So the Lord tells us what will happen when the day of the Lord comes. What will happen? The day of the, the, the heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned. Wow. Now that's one of those verses where you kind of, you read it, you sit back and you say, what's that about? What's going to happen really? What is being told to us here in this passage? There are a few possible interpretations I think there's really only two plausible interpretations. And I will just briefly explain both of those so that 
And in the end, I think there's a little truth in both the interpretations, to be honest, to be quite honest with you. They center around the definition of the word element. Look at that, verse 10. In which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Now, if you think of elements in terms of the ancients refer, uh, thought of the elements um, as being earth, wind, water, and fire. Not in that order. Maybe earth, wind, and fire. <laughs> and then water, right? <laughs> Amen. Amen. Earth, wind, and fire. Any, any earth, wind, and fire fans? Yes, September. <laughs> September. There's the musical reference. Okay, let's move on. Elements equal earth, wind, Man, I, I, I even got that order wrong on the slide, and that's my fault. But anyways, earth, wind, water, and fire. The first suggestion, this first suggestion fits the cosmology of the day in that many philosophers argued that the whole universe was made up of earth, air, fire, and water. And in the, the Stoic thought fire was viewed as the chief element into which the others dissolved in periodic cycles. And this would fit with the ending of the first age of creation by water. Second Peter 3, verse 6, we talked about that, the flood, and, and how uh, he brought the flood. And more importantly, it seems to parallel Jesus' statement in which the heaven and earth will pass away. Not heaven and the elements, but heaven and earth. And we, we have this idea in Scripture, and we even read it here, that we'll get to in a second, though, that the heavens and the earth will pass away. His word will never pass away, amen. But the heavens and the earth will pass, this idea of the heavens and the earth passing away and then having a new heavens and a new earth. And if you read the book all the way to the end, you find out that that's actually the case, that we do have a new earth. In fact, there's that past, there's that place where Jesus is seven, saying, behold, I make all things new. I make, behold, I make all things new. So there's this idea of literally the elements being dissolved. Literally the, the earth, wind, and fire, and water. Those type of elements literally being dissolved in some type of way that God chooses to dissolve them. Of course, he's the one that spoke those elements into existence in the first place. So if he spoke them into existence, I'm sure he's mighty and powerful enough to dissolve them. With the word of his mouth. Remember, Jesus is coming back. The, the vision of Christ in Revelation chapter 1 with the fiery sword coming out of his mouth. You know, to just uh, kind of actually kind of visualizes for us that authority of the word of Christ. Amen? A couple of years ago, scientists at CERN. How many know what CERN is? Raise your hand. Two, three people. One, I got, a, I got three, three hands and kind of like a, nah, I'm not quite sure. <clears throat> CERN is a place in Switzerland. It's, it's the location of the Hadron, the Hadron, what's called the Hadron Collider. Okay. In, in Switzerland, they have this underground Collider, where the, it's, I forget how many miles it is around this whole thing, but they're literally sending atoms and particles of atoms around 
um, at the speed of light and smashing them into each other and then seeing what happens and, and <laughs> seeing if they can figure stuff out. And yes, this is read up on this. This is what's happening over at CERN. And it's interesting that the, um, there's, they have the Indian uh, you know, goddess of destruction is like, the, is like the, uh, the, the, the thing that actually sits in front of the, as you come into CERN. It is bizarre, wacko type stuff. But, you know, look it up, Google it. You can do it right now. You can pull it up. The Hindu goddess of destruction is actually the, the, at the front door of CERN. They discovered a few years back what's called the Higgs boson. The Higgs boson. What is it? It's a subatomic particle. Okay? Okay, right now, this is the portion of the message where we're going to go in, into theoretical particle physics, okay? <laughs> no, just kidding. I'm not going to. But, you know, some of this is important, actually, because, honestly, if you're not keeping up with all this stuff, whoo, you know, there's so much happening now. I mean, every, you know, I remember we grew up in the 70s or whatever. Some of you grew up even further back than that. And, and stuff just wasn't happening this fast, you know. It just wasn't happening like that. And now we've got all kinds of stuff, and we've got hadron colliders, and we're, we're discovering the Higgs boson, a subatomic particle. It's a, sub, a subatomic particle that was suggested and theorized by a man named Higgs. Some called it, if you remember when this all broke a few years ago, some called it the God particle. And that is because, uh, now scientists, you, know, you say, okay, what's the Higgs boson? I, I, you know, I wasn't good at physics and chemistry and all that, and I don't, I, I, I was, but maybe you're saying that, okay? I actually enjoyed my science classes, but maybe you're, maybe, I, no, 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 no putting down, maybe you're, maybe you're an artist, you know, and you can paint and whatever, and, you know, chemistry wasn't your thing, okay? Um, physics, so they put this in layman's terms. Scientists describe the Higgs boson for layman as the particle that gives mass to atoms. I remember I joked on Twitter the day that this, this actually came out. I said, yeah, the Higgs boson may give mass to atoms, but I think it's probably Krispy Kreme that give me mass. You know. <laughs> Unfortunately, my, actually, it's probably ice cream. Um, a couple years after the confirmation of the Higgs, theoretical physicist Stephen Hawking suggested that as the Higgs gives mass to the atom, that something like a switch could be turned off and thus bringing the atoms to nothing. Not that he would have the switch, amen, but something that there seems to be, there seems to be possible within the concept of the Higgs boson, this subatomic particle that gives mass, that there could be this kind of switch that would kind of flip uh, the reality in that sense of what the Higgs does. And so could we have discovered scientifically that for God getting rid of the old world and bringing about a new one is as easy as turning a switch on and off? To describe it like that, we know God's not sitting up there. It's not like a Gary Larson cartoon, you know, where God's up there with like a, a switch, the Higgs, on, off, on, off, you know, no. But he does it with the power of his word, amen? He does it with the power that he has in his word. 
neutralizing the Higgs and then turning it back on. So there's this idea that, I, you know, when the, when the Bible talks about us getting a new heaven and a new earth, I mean, Paul talks about this certainly as far as we're concerned. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, we will be changed. Amen? That's what the Bible says to us concerning us and our resurrection bodies in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. And I actually wrote about this in my book. The twinkling of an eye? Could it be that we're changed in the smallest measure of time possible, the plank second? And so how quickly could God do his thing? And we go from the old heaven and earth to a new heaven and earth. Amen? I don't know. But just everything we know from the scripture and everything that we seem to be learning from CERN, it's a possibility. The other possibility is the elements equal the principalities and powers of the fallen world. That the word elements there equals the principalities and powers of the fallen world. And this suggestion has to do with this idea of elements, the meaning of it. And it suggests and argues that Second Peter here is dependent on a reading of Isaiah chapter 34, verse 4. You say, Isaiah 34, verse 4. Yes. Isaiah 34, verse 4. Look at it. I'll have it on the screen for you. All the host of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled back like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falls from the vine and as the fruit falling from a fig tree. Okay, what's interesting about the... Oh, we've gone deep now. Amen. <laughs> we've gone... Oh, man, we're deep down into like all kinds of stuff. Eschatology and, and uh, the reign of Christ and all kinds of stuff. The coming of the Lord. What he's saying, there's, there's a difference textually here between the heavens and the host of heaven. That the host of heaven is dissolved, but the heavens are rolled up like a scroll. The host of heaven, as you know, if you do your study in the Old Testament, God's title in many places is Yahweh of hosts, right? Because there's a heavenly host, the host of heaven, God present with his host, the divine council, if you will, if you want to go that direction, but the host of heaven, the, the heavenly beings. And we understand that there's a hierarchy to these. Now, we also understand through the teaching of the word that a portion of this host rebelled along with one principal leader, right? Lucifer led a rebellion of a portion of this host of heaven. And we've talked about this. Now we're getting into some, some stuff. But, man, I just want you guys to get this and love this because, to me, it's a great understanding of what the Scripture actually talks about and teaches. That there are these principalities. Paul put it this way. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Wickedness in high places. What was he talking about? You know, the boogeyman or some spook or boo on like, uh, you know, Halloween? No. 
He's talking about the rebellious host of heaven that is in league with the enemy of our soul, Satan, who now have been given rule by virtue of the fact that God turned the world over to, to, to the enemy and gave them up over to, to the direction that they wanted to go in. He separated the people out. You go back to the Deuteronomy 38, the Genesis 11, the Romans 1, okay? which I've done extensive teaching on this. But this is what this all goes to. So you have a difference between the host of heaven being dissolved and the heavens being rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall down. So the host shall fall down. There's a, there's a passage in the Bible that talks about the stars falling to the earth. Now there's also an idea that the stars... There's a connection between stars and the heavenly hosts. And so if you think of it from a, like a cosmology standpoint, you might kind of go, oh, how's that going to happen? But from a spiritual biblical standpoint, this is what's happening. So what is, okay, bring this all down to, so I can grab my, my mind around it. What Peter could be talking about here in his use of the term stoicheia, which is elements, is that when Jesus returns, the hierarchy of the principalities and powers, this host of this rebellious host of heaven that, 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 that we have been battling against, that he comes and dissolves their works and their powers and, and brings that to low and dissolves that. Okay? So that's a very interesting concept, I think. And if you want to know the truth of it, I love both of these interpretations, to be honest. You know, because I, I, would not, I would not, you know, as a person, as a Christian, divorce myself from an idea that, hey, we're getting a brand new earth. We're getting a brand new earth. We're getting a brand new earth. But the idea of Scripture is bringing all things that the Lord, through what he did on the cross and the victory that was won on the cross through the resurrection is about bringing all things under the subjugation of Jesus Christ. That he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And so this is kind of the idea here. So in this view, the elements are the hosts of heaven and they're dissolved of their power and position and Jesus takes his rightful place as Lord of all, and everything is brought under his rule. Um, and again, you know, I kind of like the idea of both of, the, both of those ideas, really, to be honest, to be really honest with you. So what is our, the real, the real question then becomes, so what should our response be to this? And it's really two words. We need to be committed. We need to be committed to the Lord. Let's pick it back up, verse 14. He says this, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. 
as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, test uh, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. So what is the response to all this that we know that the Lord is going to do, that the Lord is bringing about? It's really quite a simple concept but something that we need to be mindful of every single day of our lives. And that is being committed. Being committed to the Lord. Peter here asks the question, how should we live in response to these truths? How should we live in terms of our conduct and godliness? We should be committed. We should live 100% committed lives to the Lord. That means that we're loyal to the Lord. We're trusting him in everything. It doesn't mean that we don't stumble and fall. It doesn't mean that, that we're perfect in the sense that we walk perfectly because you know, John tells us, right, that if we claim to not have sin, that we deceive ourselves. But if we do sin, that we have an advocate. And so there's this idea that the, the, uh, the, the Christian does not become sinless on this side of eternity, but the Christian sins less. Amen? the growing Christian. We don't become sinless, but we hopefully are sinning less. And that's the key. And that we have this commitment to the Lord. That we have this love for the Lord. That we have a fervent passion for the Lord. Peter tells us to be diligent to be found blameless. To be diligent to be found blameless. This would include diligently and wholeheartedly continuing in the faith. Again, we've talked about this in other studies and other passages, this idea of diligence. You know, the, 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 we're, we're exhorted as Christians to do, do some things diligently. And one of the things we're exhorted to do diligently is to, is to, is to, is to love the Lord and to be committed to the Lord. And, 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 to, and to seek Him and, to, and to, 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 to wholeheartedly continue in the faith. I'm not really the biggest fan of the NIV translation. Um, I don't want to completely knock it, but I'm, as, a scholar, as, a, as a student of the word, I'm not the, it's, it's not my favorite uh, translation from that standpoint, okay? I do, however, like their translation on this particular verse in verse 14. 2 Peter 3, 14, in the NIV, I'll have it up on the screen. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, what? All this stuff we just talked about. Make every effort to be found spotless. You know, where the other translations have this idea of like diligently pursue or, or uh, how, how does the, the, the verse here? Uh, be diligent to be found by him. The NIV says, make every effort. Make every effort. I, I, I like that because that, that seems to me to be pretty clear to the English speaker. Right. I mean, there's no, you know, ambiguity, you know, there in terms of um, uh, what that's trying to mean. You know, 
Make every effort, Christian, of the first century. Christian of the 21st century. Make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. And that comes and that happens as we continue to pursue the Lord in our lives, that we follow after him. And as we have that longing for the Lord, as we love the Lord in our lives, as we find that time in the word, uh, as we learn how to, um, you know, choose the path that God has laid out before us, amen, by his word, as he lights our path, as he, as he orders our steps as the righteous of the Lord, that we're learning to walk and, and to be found blameless. So here he is giving a big exhortation to be diligent, to make every effort in living for God. And then in verse 17, we'll bring it to a close. Man, I don't, I don't, I don't, don't know if I want to bring the 21st century series to a close. But here we are. Verse 17, he says, You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. So before he closes off the letter, he gives one more warning of exhortation because he's telling us to be steadfast. He's telling us to be committed. He's telling us to make every effort in, in pursuing the Lord and following the Lord. He says, beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness. And how can that happen? How is it that can I, that I can fall from my own steadfastness? Let's say I say, I'm going to be steadfast in this. You know, in eating right, I'm going to be steadfast. You know, no ice cream and donuts and all that and wah-wah, you know, that stuff. I'm going to stay away. And then what happens? Somebody brings some donuts by or somebody comes in with, you know, some cupcakes. Who did that? <laughs> oh. So what is Peter saying here? He's saying... Lest you fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. You know, the error. You know, and, and, and really, as we close this message tonight, you could probably, you know, stop and, and do a whole series that we need in this day and age of, honestly, just right and wrong. Error and righteousness. Blessing and cursing. And that whole idea of choosing life in the Lord. And that's what God wants us to choose. So what leads the Christian away? The error of the wicked. Looking to that thing. But we need to remain steadfast. To remain committed. And he says, growing in grace. Amen. He closes the whole thing off by saying that we need to grow in grace. This is what we need to be doing as a Christian. As a Christian... We need to be learning more of the knowledge of the Lord and the word and, and, and what it advocates for our lives and literally for every single life out there. But we also need to be growing in grace. So we need to be growing in, in really grace and truth. <laughs> you could say it that way. You know, because Jesus was full of grace and truth. 
And, and it's amazing because this past summer, we were, I was at the pastor's conference at Costa Mesa. And I'll close with this. The, pa- the whole conference was on grace and truth. And one of the guys that was teaching, he says, you cannot have one truly without the other. You really can't have grace without truth. And you can't have truth without grace being extended. Because God is full of both of those things. And Jesus, John said, we beheld his glory, the one and only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen? And so if we're steadfastly making every effort to be committed to the Lord and follow him, Amen? Amen. Christian, if we're doing that, then we need to be growing in grace. We need to be growing in, in the grace of the Lord.